Uh, well, good afternoon. Well, good afternoon. Yeah, all right. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, get it out. Open it up to Romans chapter 8. And uh, that could be, you could have a, like a hard copy of the Bible, or you might have the Bible on your phone. Um, normally, I, I give this invitation, and it's just kind of a, you know, hey, join me if you've got something. But today, if, you have a, if you've got a Bible on your phone and you don't normally open it, I'm going to ask you uh, to do that because we need to look at, like, some words today. We need to look at words very specifically today. And so I want, I want you to be able to see it. Um, if you don't have a Bible on your phone, you don't have one with you, there are some by the doors back there where you came in, or you could just peek off your neighbor. Uh, it's going to be important for us to really look at what Romans 8, 26 to 30 says. And before we do that, it will help to just remind us where we are. If you're joining us this morning, uh, kind of jumping into the middle of this, for you to know where we are, because Romans 8, 26 to 30 comes intentionally here, and it comes in the context of something much larger. And so Romans uh, 1 to 5 is all about justification, that it is God's grace that saves us. We receive that grace by faith in Jesus Christ, and because of that faith uh, and that grace, we have union with Christ. And then starting in chapter 6, uh, and all the way down to the end of chapter 8, which we'll finish next week, we've grouped all of that together under one heading. And what Paul is laying out for us, what Romans 6, 7, and 8 lays out for us, is that all who have been justified by Christ, who are justified by Christ, have new life in Christ. And so if you're there in Romans chapter 8, and you can just flip back and look at chapter 6 with me really quickly. It's probably just like a page back for you. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that it would be impossible and illogical to think that you could have been justified by Christ and not have this new life. Chapter 7, then if you flip forward and look at chapter 7, he says you don't get this new life because you're able to muscle up enough obedience to the commands of Scripture or obedience to the law. Chapter 8 says you this new life is applied to you by the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's how it is that you have this new life. Romans 8, 3, if you're there and you can look down at it. Romans 8, 3 says that what the law could not do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Romans 8, 3 starts this chapter off by telling us that just as God's grace saved us, Romans 1 through 5, so too God's grace is going to sanctify us. And it's God's grace in the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer that's going to do that. And then Paul starts to walk through all of the applying work that the Holy Spirit does as it relates to sanctification. Romans 8 is not a complete picture of all of the work of the Holy Spirit, but it is a really good picture of what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer as it relates to the process of sanctification. Romans 8, 5 through 9, Paul says that you have been made new. You've been regenerated. That's the big theological term. That when you received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came into you and the old was gone, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 10 and 11 says that one day you will be made perfectly new. Your glorification is coming, and the Holy Spirit will make you into this perfectly new uh, personality, a perfectly new body that is not marked by sin. Romans 8, 12, and 13 says, In the gap from your new birth to your perfectly new birth, from your regeneration to your glorification, you are being made new. That's the process of sanctification. And then in 14, 15, 16, and 17... We're, we're given this 
incredible picture that all of that work happens, thanks, are in the security of and uh, thankfully in the presence of adoption, that we are God's sons, that we are co-heirs with Christ, and that the Holy Spirit cries that out from inside of us, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit declares that inside of us. Then in verse 18, it's like Paul anticipates a question. What about the times when everything seems to be going haywire in my life and all of this stuff that you're talking about is hard to believe? Is God sanctifying me then? Is the Holy Spirit present then? And Paul kicks that off in Romans 8, 18 by saying, I consider that these, the, the, pre- the suffering of these present moments is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. And then he goes from there down to Romans 8, 25. TA laid this out for us really well last week, that there is hope in that suffering. And it's the Holy Spirit that brings that hope to us. Last week, T.A. gave us a quote from author Tim Keller. And the quote was that what we believe about the future impacts how we live today. We're going to see that come to completion this morning, but let me illustrate it for you in a very tangible way. When the NCAA tournament started this past March, one seed's in the NCAA tournament were 135 and 0. They'd never lost a game before. That is until UMBC trotted out on the floor against the University of Virginia. And what happened is that UMBC became the first 16 seed to ever beat a one seed. What happens when you print your bracket off or you fill out a thing on ESPN.com or CBS or wherever is that you can assume you're gonna get four guaranteed games right. You're just gonna move the one seeds over because they are definitely going to win. But in the locker room that afternoon, UMBC said, hey, I don't believe that that has to be the answer. If I did believe that we were just going to lose, why would I come out of the locker room and play right now? I believe that there could be something different in the future, so I'm going to play. What they believed about the future impacted what they did in the moment. Now, what we believe about the future impacts how we fill out the bracket. The 16s are going to lose, so we take the ones. Make sense? What you think is going to happen in the future, what you believe about the future, impacts the way that you act in the present. And Paul is going to situate the future on rock-solid terms this morning. That's where we're going to end in Romans 8, verse 30. The big point, if you're a note-taker... Uh, The main thing you want to take away, if you're not a note taker, key in for the next eight seconds. This is the big point this morning. The certainty of our future glorification gives assurance to our uncertain moments of sanctification. In five sentences here from Romans 8.26 down to 8.30, Paul is going to just lay out almost dizzying truth. It's going to plumb into the very depths of the human heart. It's going to mine all the way down into the riches of God and his work and his will and his purposes. And then it's going to span all of eternity. That's what is about to happen in five verses. All to give us this sort of certainty. That even in the most uncertain moments of your life and your sanctification process, there's a a certainty of your glorification that makes those moments bearable those moments possible, and it's the Holy Spirit that leads you in that process. Let me just read verses 26 and 27. That's where we're going to start. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Three things the Holy Spirit is applying in the life of a believer. 
A couple weeks ago, we talked about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the Trinity is one God, they're of total unity, uh, one essence, but three persons. And each of those persons does a different role within the working of God. The Father initiates, the Son secures, the Holy Spirit applies. In our suffering, in our weakness, there's a certain kind of application that the Holy Spirit is doing. I want to point out three of those things just from these two verses. The first is that the Holy Spirit helps in our weakness. Paul has moved from suffering explicitly in verses 18 to 25 to the more general term weakness in verse 26. All of us in this room at varying points in our life are more or less willing, depending on where we are in life, to admit to our weakness. Typically, in our moments of suffering, we see our weakness most clearly. We're willing to call out for help, whether that's from the people around us or from the Lord. We're willing to say, I I can't solve this thing. I can't fix this thing. I don't like this thing. I'm weak. Someone help me. There's also the weakness that's just inherent in our flesh and in our sin and in our brokenness. We're weak in that way. Weak is a more general term than suffering. But Paul says, in all of your weakness, the Holy Spirit helps. And that's pretty self-explanatory. But let me paint a word picture. You can separate your friends from like your true friends based on who shows up when it's time for you to move. It's, it's Saturday. You've got to move from the old house to the new house. You made 15 phone calls to your close friends to come and help you move. And six of them were magically washing their hair. The one with the truck, the truck just randomly happened to break down the weekend that you needed the help. And now there you are standing in your kitchen looking at your refrigerator, thinking it's not just going to walk itself out of this house into the moving truck, out of the moving truck into the new house. And I'm too weak to do it. I can't do that by myself. What I need are some somebodies to help me lift this thing out of my house and into the truck, then out of the truck and into the new house. I'm weak and I need help. That's the kind of connotation of the word help in verse 26 of Romans chapter 8. It literally carries this meaning or this undertone of two people facing each other, lifting a heavy object. In your weakness, the Holy Spirit helps. It's as if in your moments of weakness, whether that be in suffering or in your own flesh and sin temptations, the Holy Spirit looks you in the eye and says, let's pick this thing up. I will carry this with you and not begrudgingly. I'm literally here to do that. That is why I am present to help you in your weakness. The Holy Spirit helps. There's a second piece of this though. It goes on in verse 26. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. The Holy Spirit helps in our weakness. The Holy Spirit intercedes in our praying. The idea here is that there are moments in which we simply do not know what to pray for. We are at a total loss for words. In those moments, the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf, on your behalf. He intercedes for us. That's a form of helping, but in a very specific sort of way. There are times that come come about in life You might be in the middle of one now. You've maybe had one recently where it's like you get into the presence of the Lord and you literally do not even know what to say. Words completely fail you. Romans 8, 26 says, in those moments, the Holy Spirit groans inside of you, 
intercedes on your behalf. A couple months ago, uh, I took a few days and just, I like disconnected from everything. I got away. I went to um, a friend's condo kind of space on the Lake of the Ozarks. I had it to myself for three or four days. And I had a plan for what that time was going to look like. And so I got down there late in the evening. I left from work here. Um, And I woke up the next morning. And the first thing that I was going to do that morning was just, just kind of quiet my heart, still myself, and just spend some time praying. So I got up and I got my Bible and I went out onto this uh, deck that overlooked the Lake of the Ozarks and I'm sitting out there and I get myself kind of quieted and stilled and there are no words that come, just tears. I mean, I am weeping out on this deck. The, The Holy Spirit groans in that moment on your behalf. Lord, I don't even know what to say. I'm, just, I'm sitting out here and I'm just weeping. And yet the Holy Spirit on your behalf is interceding for you, groaning for you. There's an incredible picture of the work of the Trinity just in prayer. We're told that the Father is in heaven, seated on the throne. Later in Romans 8, we're gonna be told that the Son intercedes on our behalf before the Father. So there's the Son interceding for us in heaven before the Father. And here we're told that it's the Holy Spirit that intercedes before our own heart. So in your own praying, there's the Spirit helping you with the things that you don't even know what to pray for so that the Son can intercede them to the Father. It's a a beautiful picture of the work of God, the Trinity, in your prayer. There are moments where you simply don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. Verse 27, the Holy Spirit does something more though. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit aligns our hearts. This is what I mean by that. It is God, that's the he there at the beginning of 27, who searches our hearts. Again, that's the fullness of the Trinity. The Father in heaven knows. We're told that the Son sympathizes with our weakness, right? He took on flesh. He understands the constraints of what it is to be human. He sympathizes with our weakness and the Holy Spirit is present in our hearts, literally knows what goes on in there so much so that he can intercede on your behalf when you don't even know the words to say. In those moments, at that time, he, God, searches our hearts and knows intimately, sees clearly our weakness but he also knows the mind of the Spirit, the Father particularly. And the Spirit, as God, knows the mind of the Father because they're one in perfect unity. And as he is searching and helping and interceding, the Holy Spirit is applying something specific to us. God, the Father, who searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In those moments where you don't know what to pray. It's just tears and no words. It's exasperation and like no declaration to the Lord. The Holy Spirit groans on your behalf. He helps your weakness and he's aligning your heart to the will of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit not only knows exactly what's going on in your heart, he knows exactly what's going on in the mind of the Father. And so he aligns your heart to that will. A large part of what happens in prayer is that we are changed. That is a significant part 
of what is going on when we pray. And it's the Holy Spirit that does that. Zoom out with me here for just a moment. From Romans uh, 8.18 down to 8.27, there have been three, mo- three mentions of groaning. Creation groans, we're told, awaiting the freedom from decay that it will receive when Christ returns and all is made new. The church groans, we're told, as it awaits for the completion and the fulfillment, the fullness of its adoption. And then the spirit groans within believers on our behalf as we try to wrestle with our inherent weakness, with the difficulties of life in a fallen world, and with the work of God in and around us, oftentimes in ways that we don't understand. And it's all pointing in one direction. All of that groaning is toward one thing, Glory. Creation groans toward the glory of an ultimately perfectly made new heaven and earth where sin is no longer present. The church groans toward the glory of its full adoption into the presence of the Lord as the family of God and the spirit within you groans toward the glory of the will of God. And that will is rooted in one place, which we'll see in just a second. So Paul needs to start telling us what is that end point? Well, he goes next to what is maybe one of the most, uh, probably in the top five or the top 10 quoted and known Bible verses in all of scripture, which is Romans 8, 28. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Paul begins a discussion about the riches of the work and the will of God. And sometimes my uh, job up here is simple. It's to point out what's obvious. And so that's what I want to do here in Romans 8, 28. I just want to point out what's obvious there and give us some reminders of the truth of who God is and how he works. The first thing is that God works. You may have noticed in the CSB translation that I read or the ESV, if that's what you're holding on your lap, that it doesn't actually include God as the subject, the one who is doing the work. If you're using an NIV or an NLT, you'll see that they do bring that out explicitly. For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The reason for this is because God as the subject is implied in the Greek. So some English translations have chose uh, to go ahead and make that implication explicit in English, while others allow it to just remain implied. Nonetheless, the thrust is clear. God works. He is not passive. He is not up in heaven wringing his hands over all that's happening down here on earth trying to figure out what he's going to do with these humans and all of their craziness. That's not what God does. He is not a passive bystander in the events of history. He's active. He works. He works in a certain place. And we're told that that place is in all things. God works in all things. See what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God works in some stuff. It doesn't say that God works only in the hard things in your life. Some of us are tempted to only come before the Lord when things get awry in our life. When things are going well, we don't really need him. I'll continue to do this on my own. When things get rough, then we go to God as if to say, okay, now would you start working on my behalf? It's not that he works in some things. Other times we can be tempted to think that God works in the good stuff, but he ignores us or he's not present. He's absent. He doesn't hear us in the hard things. And so when things are going really well, we go before the Lord and we say, thank you, thank you, thank you. When things are not going well, we say, I can't believe you would just leave me down here like this. Like you've gone absent. Are you taking a nap? What happened? God works in all things. He is in the details. He has jurisdiction over everything. He is above 
all. It's like he's up there sweating the minutest of details, except for he's not sweating because he's in control of everything. God works in all things in a particular way. God works for good in all things. Again, note what it doesn't say. Romans 8, 28 does not say that God works for our comfort in all things. It doesn't say that God works for our ease in all things. It doesn't say that God works for our happiness or our pleasure in all things. It says that we know that all things work together for the good. God works good in all things. What does that good mean then? Well, it doesn't mean that everything is just going to work out. I think sometimes we read this and we think, well, everything's just gonna work out in the end. Like it's gonna slip its way into the right ending. That's not what this means. In fact, I think most of us in here could agree that sometimes things don't work out. That relationship that you really want to have come back around, sometimes it just doesn't. That missed job opportunity or um, missed schooling opportunity or whatever the case might be, the pain of that doesn't just happen to melt away. The consequences of our sin don't just disappear. The sickness that we'd really like to have cured might not be. On the other side, it does mean that in the infinitely grand, eternal, universal picture, nothing is outside of the scope of God's good work. Now that might mean a season of deep struggle or pain in your own life. It could also mean an entire lifetime of hardship as we would define hardship. But there's hope in the midst of that because God is working it for good. The key though is that it's not my definition of good, not your definition of good. The good that God works is according to God's definition of good. My definition of good is inherently self-centered. It's riddled with desires for comfort and ease and happiness and pleasure. God's definition of good is something eternal and much grander in scope than any one of us would ever try to pin down for ourselves. It means that through the short arc of my life, I might not get the good that I want, but in the long arc of eternity, everything will work out for the ultimate good of God, for his glory and for his kingdom. Now, where I need the Holy Spirit is to help me long for that good, not to long for the good that I might want in any given situation, but instead to long for the good that God has in mind. So the question is, what is that good? That's where Paul is still moving in verses 29 and 30. But there's more in this statement in Romans 8, 28. For God works for good in all things for his people. This is important. Note that this particular truth and promise has a specific audience. Paul phrases it in verse 28, for those who love God. This isn't a general statement or promise that applies for all people. Now, will God's will prevail over all peoples for all time in all of eternity, the whole world over? Yes, absolutely it will. But there's a difference between those who love God and those who do not. Those who love God can rest assured that this is the case. Those who don't love God are left to wonder what in the world is happening out there. What is going on in this world around us? It is the people of God, those who love him, that can rest with assurance in his good and gracious work on their behalf. Why can we do that? Again, because the work has an ending in a particular spot that verse 30 is gonna get us to. Last thing in this statement, God works for good in all things according to his purpose for his people. Do a thought experiment exercise with me. Think back over the last 10 years of your life. 
If you had gotten all of the good, quote unquote, that you thought you wanted over the last 10 years, where would your life be right now? What would it look like as opposed to what it does look like at this moment? I'll be honest for myself. If I had gotten all of the good that I had prayed for and wanted and hoped for in my life over the last 10 years, my life would be an absolute train wreck right now. And not only would that be the case, but I likely would have unintentionally or possibly even intentionally hurt some people around me in the securing of what I thought was good. Now, we can see those kinds of things upon reflection. We look back and we think, whew, I'm really glad God saved me from that thing that I thought I wanted that it turns out would not have been good for me. A life of faith is one that allows the Holy Spirit to help us think that way in the moment, not just 10 years later, not just seasons of life down the road. A gospel-centered life, a life of faith, gives the Holy Spirit room to move our hearts into a place of alignment with the will of God, a place that says, Lord, I know that you're working, I know that your work is for my good as your child and that it is for your purposes in all of eternity in this world and in this moment. And I know this because your word says it. Would you use me in that? Well, thank goodness we have the Holy Spirit who helps us, who intercedes for us and who brings our heart into that sort of alignment. Zoom out again. See where you need the Holy Spirit in your suffering and in your weakness. See what he's applying here. We need the Holy Spirit to groan on our behalf because we often don't even have the foggiest clue as to what is good in any given situation. We don't know what it is that we should be seeking or what we should be praying for, but the Spirit does because the Spirit is God. The Spirit knows the will of God. God knows the mind of the Spirit. And as we pray, the Spirit groans for us. Our hearts are brought into alignment with the good work of God on our behalf according to his purpose. God works for good in all things for his people according to his purpose. And then Paul goes on because we're still left with the question for all of the wonderful truths of Romans 8, 26, 27, and 28, it still leaves us with the question. And that question is, what is this will of God that we're told is being worked out in all things? And in response, Paul gives us Romans 8, 29, and 30. Let me remind you of what our ultimate end point is here this morning. That the certainty of our future glorification gives assurance to our uncertain moments of sanctification. Paul has had a lot to say about the uncertain moments here in our suffering, in our weakness. All of those things are weaving themselves together for our ultimate good to help mold us into the image of Christ. And now Paul is going to ground all of that work in the certainty of our glorification. Let me just read Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. If you've been around church very long, you know that there are some loaded words there. Words that spark division and debate among people. And as I read them, you probably thought to yourself, Lord, help this young man. Here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to get bogged down in a debate about predestination versus free will. I don't want us to get lost in the intricacies of the theological differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. 
That's not what Paul wants either. He wants us to see a bigger picture of what's happening here. But at the same time, we're not going to avoid the words. The words are there. So we have to wrestle with what they mean. And so here's what I want to do with these. I'm going to just define them. And those definitions are going to be based on all of the times that especially these first three verbs, foreknew, predestined, called, are used in the New Testament and throughout Scripture. After having defined what those terms mean, I'm then going to show what I think Paul is saying in the scope of this entire uh, two-verse section, but also in the scope of Romans here. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to third, give you my opinion and my read on what this, uh, this passage means and what ultimately these words mean for a believer. I'm going to do that with an understanding, and that understanding is one of humility. I understand that there are people who are much smarter than me, who over a couple thousand years have differed in the way that they read this passage. I understand that there are people in this room who have walked with Jesus much longer than I have who might think differently than I do on this particular passage. But I also understand that we can walk in unity even if we think differently. And so as I give my opinion on what these mean, uh, know that I understand all of those things. Uh, but I also do read this a particular way. See this first. Paul's going to span this from eternity past all the way into eternity future. And nothing is wiggling out of the chain here. Romans 8, 29 and 30 is often referred to as the golden chain. There's no gap in this. There's no spot for someone to kind of slip their way out or to fall through the cracks or something. In fact, some of your translations may insert the word all at certain points. For all those he predestined, he also called. Um, one continuous motion. Everybody situated at the beginning is going to be situated at the end. Let's start with the first two words in this chain. This begins in eternity past. For those he foreknew. When we hear the word foreknew, we typically think of facts. Like, man, when I was in college, if I had foreknown the questions on the test, I would have gotten all the answers right. When we think of foreknowledge, we think of knowing facts, as if this must mean that God knew some things were going to happen because he sees everything and he knows everything. There's more connotation here than just that. Does God absolutely know everything that's going to happen? Yes. Is that all that's being talked about in this verse? No. The word appears six times in the New Testament. The word is prognosco. In all six occurrences, the thrust of the word is not merely that God knew some fact about us beforehand, but that he knew us in a relational sense beforehand. The Hebrew version of this word appears multiple times in the Old Testament. One of them is in Hosea 13, verse 5. It says that he, God, knew the Israelite people in the desert. That doesn't just mean that God intellectually knew that there was a group of people, the Israelites, wandering around the desert. It means that he knew them in a relational sense, that he loved them, that he was caring for them, that he was watching over them, that they were his people. He knew them. In fact, many commentators and scholars talk about this particular word in the sense of not just for knowing, but for loving, that God has known beforehand and loved beforehand a particular group of people. In this instance, Romans 8, 29 is not talking about a prior knowledge of facts. It is talking about knowing and loving 
in relationship to a person or to a people. It isn't that God knows something about us. It's that he knows us. And that's a significant difference. John Murray says it this way. This foreknowledge is not the foresight of difference, but a foresight that makes a difference. It makes a difference because he knows us, his people, relationally. And he does something with that foreknowing and foreloving. We're told that those he foreknew, he also predestined. Again, that, wor- that word for predestined, the Greek word is used six times in the New Testament. Prohorismo is the word. Prohorizo. In this case, what that word means, we're told that God foreknew something, so he prohorizoed something. He predestined. The word means to decide beforehand. God knew us in a relational sense and therefore made a decision beforehand. What was that decision? Well, thankfully, we're told in Romans 8, 29 exactly what that pre-made decision was, that all those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That is what God has decided beforehand. Every person that he foreloved would be conformed into the image of his son. Remember, our sanctification, our growth into the image of Christ is an atonement purpose. A couple weeks ago, I read Titus 2.14. It's worth reading again. It says that he, Jesus, gave himself for us for two things. Number one, to redeem us from all lawlessness. And number two, to cleanse for himself a people for his possession eager to do good. Jesus died for those two reasons. He died that there would be a people who bear God's image. Paul is affirming that here. Romans 8.29 is affirming that here. He's specifically affirming that God has decided that all those that he foreknew and foreloved, he would conform into the image of his son. The uh, prefix pro on the front end of those two words signifies that this happened in the past. Eternities past. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, and then he did something with that decision. We're told that he called. The word is kaleo. It's used 151 times in the New Testament. This calling is not merely a general invitation that we might be able to turn down. Why is that the case? Well, because no one gets out of the chain. Every single person he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Every single person that he predestined to be conformed, he called. And then the next thing is going to tell us that every single person that he called, he justified. There's no wiggling out of the chain. There's no slipping through or falling through the cracks here. What's in view is not merely an invitation, but what is called an effectual call that God calls and people answer. Look, when your cell phone rings, we all do this. You pull it out and you look at who it is. You might answer that phone call or you might not, depending on who's calling. Melody and I do this at our house. Sometimes the doorbell rings. We're not expecting anyone could be like someone trying to sell something. I cave in those. I will buy whatever ends up coming to my front door. So when the doorbell rings, sometimes we won't get up and answer it. Now, if you came to our house and rang the doorbell, obviously we would come running to the door in excitement. But sometimes there's a calling on your phone or there's a call that comes from your doorbell. You have the choice to answer it or not. What's in view here is not that. It's not just that there's an option to answer. It's that those God foreknew and foreloved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and therefore he called them and they answered. 
Let me pause here for a minute before we go on. I said I would tell you the way I read these verses. Thus far, I've given some definitions. Let me give the way I take these up to this point. Again, I do so humbly, but the way I lean here is that when all is said and done, if we could see all that God sees and know all that God knows in eternity, we would find that he is in control of far more than we want to give him control over. Our flesh rises up when we read this little chain because, well, what about my free choices? What about my freedom to do whatever it is that I want to do? Humanity's freedom to do whatever it is that they want to do. I believe very clearly the Bible says that we are dead and deaf and blind and that we need supernatural help in order to have life and ears and eyes. I believe that Romans 3 describes the state of humanity that is completely helpless. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good. I believe that I'm situated inside there. And if anything were going to change that, it could not possibly come from me. It had to come from the Lord. And the only way that that could happen is that he foreloved me. It's an act of grace on his part. And yet, I say that, but I also understand that when I look around the world around me, I see people make choices. We present the gospel from up here every single Sunday. We lay out who Jesus Christ was, that he died for our sin, that we needed a savior, that his faith and his death is the means by which God's grace comes into our life and forgives us and brings us into right standing with the Lord. And then we see people make decisions to place their faith in that, to receive God's grace. I believe absolutely that God is in control of all that happens, but I see people make decisions. So I live in response to that while having faith in the fact that God is sovereign. Let me read a quote here. This is where uh, some portion of the congregation is drafting the email they're going to send me this afternoon. There's a quote from J.I. Packer, and it's kind of lengthy, but I'm gonna read the whole thing. And the reason I'm going to read the whole thing is because we might intellectually have issues with this chain that Paul lays out. Experientially, we all behave a little bit differently, and J.I. Packer brings it out perfectly. He says this, Two facts show us that though we may not like the thought of it intellectually, we all believe in God's sovereignty in all things. In the first place, you give thanks to God for your conversion. Now, why do you do that? Because you know in your heart God was entirely responsible for it. You did not save yourself. He saved you. There's a second way in which we all acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. We pray for the conversion of others. We ask God to do in them everything necessary for their salvation. So our thanksgiving and our, our intercession proves that we believe in the divine sovereignty. On our feet, we may have arguments against it, but on our knees, we all agree. Those he foreknew or foreloved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of, their, of his son. So he issued a call. And in that call, they responded. What did they respond for? justification. All those he called, he justified. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on justification because this is what Romans 1 through 5 was all about. And we spent like five months walking through that. If you're here this morning and maybe you missed some of that, I would invite you after this is over to go read Romans 1 through 5 and see Paul lay out what justification is. Those God foreloved, he determined would be conformed because they would be called and they would be justified. And we finally arrived at the end point here. 
and those he justified, he also glorified. The destiny of the people in view here has one and only one end point, glorification. That's where all of those who love God are headed. They will be given new bodies, perfected personalities in a new world, all of which will exist in the full radiance of God's glory for all of eternity without the presence of sin. There are no gaps in the chain. No one falls through. You won't fall through. That's why Paul puts it here. It's not to necessarily answer some sort of uh, theological question that's been troubling people for a couple thousand years. Paul puts this here as an encouragement to you. In your uncertain moments, in your suffering, in your weakness, you won't fall through the cracks. From eternity past to eternity future, God has been holding you rock solid in one place. That's why we can show up on a Sunday morning and sing, you're never gonna let, you're never going to let me down. Why? Because he literally cannot. He can't. But we have these moments of total weakness where we get in the presence of the Lord and words completely fail us. We don't even know what to say. The tears come, but prayers do not. Have no fear, Romans 8 says, because there's the Holy Spirit helping you in that moment, groaning on your behalf, aligning your heart with the will of God, which just so happens to be that you will absolutely be glorified. And so there's hope in your suffering. There's help in your weakness. Zoom back out with me one last time. Creation knows that freedom from decay is coming, and so it groans. The church knows that the fullness of our adoption is coming, and so it groans. What does the Holy Spirit know inside of you right now? Glorification is coming, and so it groans. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your weakness, it groans. It pleads on your behalf. It intercedes on your behalf. It helps your weakness on your behalf. The Holy Spirit is carrying you to the finish line of God's ultimate glory and your glorification. Look at what Paul says next. We'll talk more about this tomorrow or next Sunday, but just peek forward. Verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? It's like Paul screams out, if God is for us, who or what could possibly be against us? Eternity past to eternity future, God is for us and it is secure. What could possibly stand against us? Nothing. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed. I want to end with a story from my own life. Like seven months ago, I lost one of the, one of the greatest mentors in my life. And part of my relationship with Tim is that there would be times where uh, I would have situations going on in life that I just did not understand. And we would get together and we would go and uh, get lunch together or something like that. And he would just patiently listen while I unfolded for him whatever challenge or whatever struggle was going on in my life. And then he would offer me some wisdom or perspective or whatever the case might be. I cherished that relationship almost more than just about any other one I've had on this earth. And he passed away seven years ago, in, or seven months ago. And in the intervening time, my life has become more challenging than it's ever been for me. The difficulty and the, the darkness and the weight of some of the things going on in my heart have been so overwhelming in that time that there have been 
weeks on end where I would think, if I could just have 10 minutes with Tim, just so I could get some perspective. I, I want that more than anything in the entire world. And I've been wrestling through this passage and thinking about the Holy Spirit's help and not just weakness, like some general thing that exists outside there, but my actual weakness, like my actual points of, of suffering and struggle and tension and hardship in this season of life. And man, if I could just have 10 minutes with Tim, like I would want so badly to hear his perspective. And as I've worked in this passage, I realized that he would patiently listen to me. He would lovingly say, Tim, I know that's hard. And I'm so sorry that's going on. And I wish I could fix it for you. But then I think a little smile would crack on the edge of his mouth and he would say, but glory is coming. And I've seen it. And I know it. And I consider that your present suffering is not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed one day. Hang on. Hold on, because glory is coming. And it's not to trivialize the difficulty of what you have going on right now, but to magnify the greatness of what that glory is going to be like. And you cannot wiggle out of it. It is certain. It's as certain in the future as it was in eternity's past. And it is coming. And what I've realized over the last month or so is that as badly as I want that conversation with Tim, I don't need it because I have the Holy Spirit. And he is there helping and interceding and aligning my heart to the will of God, which is that no matter what happens in my life, no matter what sufferings or weaknesses present themselves, they are all moving me toward one spot, which is in the here and now, my own sanctification, but in eternity, my glorification in his glory. Tim would absolutely tell me that if I could have 10 minutes with him right now, the Holy Spirit is literally screaming that inside of me at all times. And the same is true for you. We might want to quibble with what Romans 8, 29 and 30 says intellectually, but as followers of Jesus Christ, it is the most magnificent promise that we cling to in our moments of suffering, in our moments of weakness, and in our moments of challenge. Glorification is coming. Hang on. And in the moments that you can't really believe that, the Holy Spirit is helping. The Holy Spirit is groaning. The Holy Spirit is aligning your heart to that reality. Amen? It's 1249, and your child's Sunday school teacher would love nothing more than for you to relieve their suffering by going and getting your children. I went long, I apologize, um, but we'll pick up in Romans 8, 31 next week, amen? Amen, have a great week.